You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hi, it's Julie. Thanks for tuning in. Do we have a treat for you? I am honored to introduce Dia Sims, the epitome of a powerhouse. Dia shares her story coming up from army roots to growing up with neighborhood hip hop, think kid and play, outside of a New York suburb, negotiating multi-million dollar contracts for the Department of Defense, taking a leap into radio sales, working with P. Diddy and then running his organization, and now CEO of Lobo 1707 leading the pack with her partners, Diego Osorio and the one and only LeBron James. Now sit back, grab your favorite Tequila Lobo 1707 cocktail and get inspired. Dia, welcome to Served Up. We are so happy to have you today. I am so thrilled to be here, Julie. Oh my God, you have no idea. Bridget and I have been looking forward to this and unfortunately she can't be here with us today, but she'll be with us in heart. Oh my gosh. Well, she's definitely missed and now you're required to have me back on again. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Well, Dia, you are just an icon in this industry and I've heard so much about you. Your name came up the other day with a couple of colleagues of mine that had met you when you were working on Ciroc. They, they manage our Bacardi portfolio. So uh, Tara Jones and Candace Stroud, and they were like, what you're meeting, you know, I know Dia. And I'm like, oh my goodness, she has friends everywhere. I think that's just amazing. And that you were just so open to, to meeting with us. Oh you know, we gosh, appreciate of course. that. It's a privilege. Look, this industry, you know, is so small, right? And honestly, no matter what you do, you're going to be running into people over and over again. And I just kind of operate from the point of view that everyone has something to teach and everyone has something to learn. So I try to go into any your relationship, even if it's whether it's your Uber driver or major CEO, you never know what nuggets of knowledge or inspiration um, you can find. I love that. And that must be such a key to your success. Cause I, I feel that I feel that way too. You know, I mean, starting in, in a sales role, you know, that's something that you always learn. It doesn't matter. You talk to everybody, you treat everybody with respect and you never know, like you said, who you can get inspired from and learn from. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I was in sales too, for a long time. One, I just think it's the right thing to do is kind of the way I was raised. And then two, it is just smart business. And particularly if you, you, your bread and butter is in sales, you better make friends with everybody. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So speaking about when you were born and raised, we like to go all the way back. So, yeah. yeah. So tell us a little bit. I saw that you were born in Monterey in California and wine country. Yes. Yes. So yeah. So started early. I was predestined to have wine in my blood at some point. Um, so, (laughs) um, yeah. So I, my father was in the army. 
so we were, the base is now closed, but we were, I was born on an army base um, in Monterey. And then we lived in what was then West Germany. So clearly you can see my age. Um, <laughs> and, um, and then when my father got out of the service, uh, we went back to New York where he was from originally, both my parents um, from Queens and Brooklyn. Um, and that's where I mostly was raised uh, in New York. Oh, great. So you were in your Family was in the army. That's incredible. We had a little stint. My dad was in the army early on. So I was born on a military base as well. Oh, so where? We in San Antonio, uh, Fort, yeah, Fort Sam Houston, I think in, in Texas, but it was a quick stint. I'm like, yeah, I was born in Texas. I don't remember it. It was just, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and then we hopped around from there. So most of your upbringing was then in Queens, in New yes, York. Yes, most of my upbringing was in Queens. I grew up in this neighborhood called East Elmhurst, which is interesting. It's where LaGuardia Airport is. And it's also where a very famous prison, Rikers Island is. Um, so, <laughs> and it was, it was an interesting neighborhood where I grew up. It was one of the, there was only a handful of like solidly middle-class, all black neighborhoods in New York. And this was, this was one of them in Queens. And um, at the time that I was growing up, hip hop was still like a music infant. And some of my neighbors were a little bit older than me, but like Kid and Play and Salt and Pepper and this guy, Herbie Lovebug, who was kind of a precursor to Puff, actually, um, I would just like see them practicing out of my backyard while my mother had me like hanging the clothes or like, you know, so, or see them at all the block parties or like Kwame and all these different artists. So as a kid, I watched what was like a neighborhood hobby become this cultural explosion. Next thing I know, they have like feature films in every movie theater across the United States. And then as I grow up, I see, you know, hip hop become this trillion dollar industry, like number one streaming on Spotify around the world from something that when I was growing up was just like this cool thing you did around the way. And of course, I don't think I was processing all this at nine years old, but I'm sure it's no coincidence that I ended up really being thoughtful about the respectful intersection of culture and commerce. That's incredible. I mean, they were literally in your backyard. Totally. I mean, like, kid I and would play. Yeah. <laughs> I would see That's them. That's like the epitome of house party. You know, <laughs> you think of house party, you think of kid and play. That is just, wow. What an experience. And that was right around nine years old. So as you were kind of growing up, you, yeah. you experienced that firsthand. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, you know, a lot of times, of course, you don't realize what is impacting you when it's happening, but um, retrospectively, I have no doubt. And I also saw them become entrepreneurs. Um, they were music artists, but then, you know, play opened up a barbershop in our neighborhood. And we started to see the endorsements that they were doing and see salt and pepper tour. And you started to realize like, wow, this is a real, this is like a real business, which at that time, mostly everyone I knew were like firemen or cops or work for the government or teachers. Um, it had never really occurred to me in my teenage years, like, wait, this is a, this is a whole job. I can make money doing this. How did that kind of lead you to, because you went to school in New York or, or did no, you? No, I went to um, undergrad Morgan State, which is an HBCU in Baltimore, Maryland. And then I got my graduate degree uh, from a school, uh, Florence Institute Technology, which I went I, I, back on my military. I work for the Department of Defense. So they have a lot of graduate campuses on defense bases. And I got my master's degree in management with a concentration in contract management. So what made you go to the Department of Defense? Well, so I was considering law school at the time. I had thought about law school or med school, and I ended up going to neither. And then I thought about <laughs> And when I went to DOD, I was part of this like particular program that they had rolled out. There was a period 
golly, now is a long time ago, probably 30 years ago, where there was a bunch of controversy and hullabaloo that the Department of Defense was overspending with their contractors, $500 you know, hammers and $1,000 toilets. And so DOD made a concerted effort to bring like a freshman crop of new high GPA students that they could come in and train in negotiations to really best represent and protect the taxpayer. So I was part of that group and I was interested in it, particularly because uh, I, I was literally sent for two years to what was called the Defense Acquisition University and trained in negotiations. And at the time I was like, oh, this is like perfect before I go to law school. That um, was the reason why I originally took it. And, and to this day is honestly like the best training. I was 21 years old. My first contract I negotiated was like a $122 million contract. And I was like, why are they trusting me with but I took it very seriously and I was like obsessed and like really read all the federal acquisition regulations, which are just as sexy as they sound and really wanted to do the best possible job. And in every room I was in, you know, with these major defense contractors who had been in the industry for sometimes for 50, 60 years, there was mass confusion about why I was there if I wasn't doing anything else besides serving coffee. And I would do it over again a hundred times as it was the absolute best training, the real training on negotiations, and then just the battlefield training, if you will, of being in these conference rooms negotiating against people who didn't understand necessarily my utility. Oh my God. So that, that makes you like a lethal weapon, right? I mean, you, um, so these liquor, (laughs) these liquor contracts, that's nothing, you know, I mean, um, so what do you think being, you know, cause at that time you, you were, you were young, fresh, new thoughts, new ideas, definitely probably didn't look like, um, the group that no, definitely not. (laughs) And so what was your trick? What did you do? What made you so great and so different? So the reality is all these years later at 45, I I am still, fortunately, very often youngest person in the room, only woman or one of two women and the only minority, um, which is, which is, which is not ideal. And I know we're all very passionate about how we change that person by person. I mean, at the time, I've always tried to get real close to the bottom line and show my economic impact as fast as possible. So whatever preconceived notions you may have, I've always tried to combat as much as I can with math. (laughs) So uh, I'm saying like you can't, whatever you thought, like this is the savings, impact, sales, revenue, um, retention, whatever dispassionate metrics I can prove early, often uh, has always been my mantra or approach. Just cut straight to the chase, get down to what matters the most, you know, and I'm sure a lot of it had to do with your approach and your personality as well. I hope so. I mean, I, um, I, I do, I think it's a combination of your emotional intelligence with understanding, getting to a level of mastery with negotiations. And then also to the bigger point of like, what are we all doing? Like I've been doing, I was doing like integrated logistic support and buying trainer jets and buying helicopters and doing a tripartite agreement on night vision goggles with France and Singapore. And like all these had a secret clearance. It felt very cool. But at the end of the day, I have always believed it was very much race to believe like, you know, your real life is with your family and friends. Your real life is when you have an opportunity not to be corny, but to like have like real love in your life. So I also kind of took things very seriously in terms of showing up at the level of excellence, but not serious enough that it would ever uh, damage the whole of who I am. Mm -hmm. So when people say that in a negotiation, you have to have that win-win, is that a fact where you have to give a little to get a little? I think in in most of the best negotiations, everybody's going to walk away slightly dissatisfied. Again, my approach is always to like objectively, try objectively look at both sides and really lead with empathy 
and then come with a real fact-based approach. I'm not a, a negotiator who's prone to puffery. Like I'm not coming like bluffing and saying I want five X's. I really want two X. I'm going to come probably pretty close to where I want to be. And then I'm going to explain with real rationale why it makes sense. Now I may not budge easily, but I will, but it will be a conscionable approach. Wow. I'd love to be on your side and a negotiating room. And so from there, what made you switch careers? Because I think you ended up doing that for a while and then just jumping off and starting your own business. I did a lot of things. I did not have a linear path forward. So I was bored, honestly. I started off in, in uh, aviation and then I moved to C, if you will. And I ended up just at a much slower division. I was, um, I was originally working in a very small town in Maryland, the southernmost tip of Maryland. And I'm a New York City girl. And the town was in an uproar because a large contingency had moved down from the D.C. area to this town. This was literally like you stop and horses cross. And if you go to the supermarket, people were pissed about the number of new stoplights that were coming out. So I'm like, where am I (laughs) coming from? You know, I'm still relatively young. I'm like, what? So I transferred to another um, division in Washington, D.C. So D.C. was was fun, but the particular division was very slow. And I was getting projects that took about four to five days to complete that were meant to be three or four month projects. And I was like, this is just not for me. I'm a super geek. I like to learn as much as I can. And I was just home with my roommate complaining about it. And this guy she was seeing at this time was like, you should get into sales. I was like, no, I don't want to sell, force people on things. Like, no, no, I think you'd be good at it. And I went to interview for a job in radio sales and got the job offer and took it. And then I did a bunch of stuff. I did marketing. I did pharmaceuticals. I launched a small uh, marketing company in the DC area that focused on on and off-premise promotions. Um, I work with old Seagrams. Anybody remembers Seagrams mm-hmm. back 20 years ago? <laughs> I used to work with Appleton, did a ton of that kind of stuff. And then um, pharma, radio, and then back, uh, I started to work for, for Sean Combs um, the week after I turned 30. Oh my goodness. And how did that happen? So I got back into radio sales in New York and I inherited all the music labels at a hip hop station as my client. And Bad Boy Records, um, which was Sean Combs' kind of legendary record label, refused to advertise with the station out of loyalty um, to the competing station. And I just wouldn't give up. So I kept making different points about why they should do it and, and working with his marketing executives. And I finally convinced them to advertise with our station. Then I got more and more business with them. And one day, one of the marketing executives at work for, for Puff called me and was like, he wants to hire a chief of staff. Would you be interested in interviewing for the position? And I've always been like, yep, I'll just, I'm happy to take the conversation. You just never know where a door will lead. So um, had the interview, shortest interview of my life was like five minutes. No idea how it went. He has like the best poker face. And they called and said, would you be willing to come on? He'd like to hire you, but you have not managed very large teams. So would you be willing to come on as his executive assistant instead of chief of staff? And I was like, I don't, I don't care what you call me. This is what I want to be. I don't care about the title. I was like, but I, but I am doing okay. So I'm going to keep my, keep my salary and I'll, I'll be there two weeks. <laughs> That's wow. And I think you were smart enough to know. It's like, Hey, you get that foot in and then you show them what you can do. And, and then the rest is history. I mean, you telling me about your journey reminds me of me growing up because we're probably, we're very close in age. I just had my 42nd birthday. What? So yeah. So here in kid in play, salt and pepper growing up. <laughs> you look amazing. Oh. Um, and then just with Bad Boy Records coming out. So at, at that time, what year was that? That was that a- was 2000. I started October 5th, 2005, working for Puff. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah, that was that was a while ago. Yeah. And um, I mean, he was just 
on fire then, like taking over the world. I know this isn't about <laughs> Puff Daddy, but we no, can't. No, no, it's not. fun. is <laughs> uh, executive assistant didn't take you long for him to just start giving you more and more responsibility. Not at all. Um, it's a funny story where I think actually he and I never even talked about this, but I felt like I knew the moment when he was like, okay, I can trust, I can really trust this person. So I'd started off as executive assistant. I may have been there for just about three weeks, I think. And he was coming out with an album. It's called the Biggie Duets. And they were shooting a video the next day, but they were still casting. So it was about maybe like 7.30 at night. He was walking out to go to the studio. He rips out a model from a magazine, but doesn't give me the actual magazine. So I don't see where it's from. And then hands me the picture and says, I would like to have this woman for the video tomorrow. Can you find her? <laughs> so it's literally just an album. Think back, like this is like 2005. Like Google wasn't even popping like that. It was yeah. not. It was just like, and even the fact that we you had can't do a face scan. Yeah. yeah, it was totally, you know, we were on our Blackberries, you know, sending out Morse code. Like, so I luckily had a lot of friends in publishing. So I like call around, describe the shoot as best as I can, figure out what magazine it's from, find out. I'm like, so this is like two hours. Finally, I find out like who shot it. I'm like explaining the person. I find out who the woman is. Turns out she's uh, Brazilian and she's in Brazil. <laughs> of course. Of course. So I find who her, um, I find out where she is. I find flights and I get set up with her manager and I'm like, okay, uh, when can she talk on the phone? I want to get a phone call going with her. And they said, we can talk, but she's only speaks Portuguese. So my god sisters from Cape Verde. <laughs> I called her. And then, so this is now like, it's probably now like three and a half hours later. So I call the studio and I say like, Puff, you know, I found this, you know, this woman, this, she's available. She will be a little bit late, but she can make it by the end of the shoot tomorrow. But she only speaks Portuguese. I have her manager available and I have a translator. And I think he was like, okay, she's not to be trifled. <laughs> because after that, I got like a million assignments the next day. <laughs> oh my God. You know, I mean, it's like, do you think he was testing you? Like that was a test to see? You never know. I mean, you know what? He has a million ideas a day and I could see it. To be honest, I don't know that he actually expects them all to come true because he's just such a consummate visionary. Mm -hmm. So I think he was like surprised, like, oh, wow. She, you know, actually really followed all the way through on this. <laughs> so yeah, I think we, we have like a good, he has like just a super just a huge imagination, a great dreamer. And like, I'm like a dream factory. Like, okay, that's a great idea. Let me figure out how we make it scalable, profitable. How do we replicate it? What's the best thing to do? You want to, you know, you want to start apple trees. I know golden delicious apples are better than pink apple. Like, you know what I mean? I'm going to do all of the, the data research the ROI. And I'm very respectful of the creative process to make sure that we get the best connectivity to something that has the right heartbeat with it. I think that's the magic, right? I mean, you have to have both. And I've been around people like that, that just have the creative ideas and you're right. They just throw them all out. And, and it's about, you know, I, we have a lot of leaders like that, that I've worked with and they throw out the idea. I'm like, okay, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to yes. make this happen. Yes. Right. And that's so relatable on a whole nother level. <laughs> it's not <laughs> relatable, but it's relatable. Um, so with all these different projects, what got you into taking on the brands and, and getting into that? So I was working as Sean's chief of staff. And um, so that was everything from all of his estate, security, jets, and then also liaising with all the business units. So 22 licenses at Sean John, the record label, publishing, touring. We had five TV shows at the time, lots of stuff. He had had many years of opportunities to get into the spirits industry. And he was really respectful of like, I don't know if I want to do it until I'm really ready so I could do it in a way that's responsible. And he was like, until a way that I can make sure 
I can also bring more minorities into the space. So at first he was like, I don't, he was reticent about the concept of going and doing the Ciroc Vodka deal. And as this, as the conversation started to progress, I went to him and going back to my DOD days and said, I would like to be part of the negotiation team. I don't know if you know this, but I'm trained in negotiations. And um, right now it's just, just like him and his lawyer and a CFO. He said, okay, you can become a part of it. So um, it was a very small group of us who led the negotiations for the Ciroc Vodka deal with Diageo and Diageo was an incredible partner. And when we finished and we're about to launch the business, I went back and said, all of your success has really been boosted by your enormous marketing skills, but we no longer have a big marketing team. We used to have an in-house agency that had kind of gone quiet. And I said, I want to step away from chief of staff. I want to relaunch that agency. I will get it funded, but I want to be point on the Ciroc Vodka uh, opportunity. And he said, yeah, if you can, he said, he said, replace yourself and sounds great. Go for it. Um, so I went and negotiated, got funding and built out the in-house agency, which was responsible for all the day-to-day -day activation, brand, uh, above the line, commercials, national account strategy, channel strategy, everything you can imagine working lockstep with the Diageo team to build the brand from, from day one. And that's how I got involved. And then once I was working on Ciroc, and I had a full marketing team, we took on a few other things in terms of other advisory for other spirits brands and other Combs Enterprises brands. Wow. You just, you just say all that, like it was so easy. You know, I mean, this takes like decades for brands to figure out and wow. I'm, I'm sure he was just so grateful to have you. It's like, what you have negotiation skills. Okay. You know, you can do this and start a, a in-house marketing agency. Wow. So how, how many years um, were you kind of dedicated to all of that? Um, so I was there uh, in total 14 years. When we started the Ciroc relationship, you know, from a major supplier standpoint, the brand was failing. It had been out for five years. Maybe if like a person started, it would have been doing fine, but it wasn't meeting the expectations. And we worked diligently to turn that brand around to, I mean, at its height, it was about a $2 billion retail value brand um, wow. and moved it to over 2 million cases around the world. So that experience was invaluable. And the more, although I'd had a stint with the spirits industry earlier, just on the on and off premise side, from a promotional standpoint, this going very deep in every single level from, from margins to supply to R&D to glass costs to everything, that. And then we also worked together to buy um, a tequila brand together with Diageo. I just, I really love the industry and all the things that it combines and the science and art of it. And the, and I'm, I'm like, I'm big and always was kind of raised. And like, if you see a place uh, where you're not represented, it's very important that you show up, you show up strongly, you show an economic example of excellence and you bring as many people along with you as you can. Um, so we have been, I mean, now with the brand that I'm so proud to work with, Lobo 1707, where our entire mantra is like, if there is enough room, we build a bigger table, is very cemented. And we're very intentional about the fact that we're now over 50% women, over 60% ethnically diverse, because this is an industry that's, you know, uh, that's ripe for additional diversity. And the more you diversify thought, you will see actual incremental returns economically. And I don't think that can be said often enough. Yes, 100%. And that's where you are today. So, you know, tell us about that journey with Lobos and how you move on into this new chapter of your life and still a young, beautiful, ambitious oh. woman. <laughs> and, and now you're, you know, you go from one king of hip hop to like king of, I, I mean, LeBron James and, and what he brings to the forefront off of the basketball courts. I've always been a huge fan. You know, I just, what he's done with the schools and, and just 
always speaking up and using his platform, I think is just so incredible. So when we heard of your guys' partnership with Lobos and learning about you and getting on your site and seeing that messaging, it comes out loud and clear, like join our pack. And it is very intentional. So how did that happen? Yeah, no, it's been incredible. And, um, and you bring up a good point too around, you know, in the spirit that's steel sharpened steel, like very different, obviously, but I think Sean and LeBron are so committed to being champions and to excellence and to actually ensuring that everybody around them also wins and succeeds. So it was just a natural, it was for me, it was like, okay, this is another place where I can learn and be inspired. LeBron is such a gentleman and such diligence to whatever he wants to do. It's been just an incredible journey. When I was first connected to the opportunity about the brand, I was talking to the founder who is an incredible creative also, and really so thoughtful in terms of the way he curated the liquid and the bottle and the story. And it's his real family history. And you can just feel the difference, right? When, when somebody it's like their heartbeat and like, this is my family, this is legit in my blood. Not just cause I just had a you know shot, but like <laughs> in my blood, um, it means so much to him. And he's such a beautiful example for all of us that to go the extra mile that we honor everybody from the Himadors to the consumer, because we, it's a real place of gratefulness in the way we built this brand. So Lobos means wolves. And um, it comes actually from our founder's family's coat of arms, um, which has been in his family for over 400 years. Mm -hmm. And although his career had historically been as a documentary filmmaker and an actor in Spain, his family has been in the wine and spirits industry for something like 400 years. Uh, so as a kid, he like, they had these beautiful bodegas with going through like cask of brandies that they would, you know, age and sell to brands like McAllen. And he would just would take for granted. It's like, oh, I'm not getting this business. I'm going to, I'm going to focus on storytelling. And his cousin reached out to him and said, we should get in the family business, but let's do it our way. And he said, I'm not interested in that. And this cousin said, no, no, you need to think about it as a as a different way of storytelling. And he said that was very enticing to him and started to do the research on his family and said, okay, well, let me, if I do this, it needs to be legitimate. It needs to honor our history. And I want to, I don't want to make up a fake story in an advertising agency, right? I want to tell my real story. And it turned out that his great, great grandfather had his same name, which he didn't know. And apparently his mother didn't know who was one of the five viceroy kings of Spain would go from Spain to Mexico with these beautiful casts filled with pinos and brandies and drink them on the way. And then when they would get to Mexico, they would fill it back up with an agave spirit and head back to Spain and notice, which we all know today, well, geez, tastes incredible after, <laughs> after oh, five I months. I love that. Yeah. And so today when he thought about getting to the space, he wanted to honor that history. All of our four variants have a PX finish, a Pedro Jimenez, and it goes through the Solera system, which is, to our knowledge has never been used in tequila or mezcal. And he so painstakingly worked on the integrity, viscosity, the feel of the liquid to make sure that it could stand up against anything in the marketplace that we feel, although we have... And we're thrilled to have LeBron James and Arnold Schwarzenegger and all these huge names in their audience. Our liquid is really our star. And it was never a brand that was created to be, oh, let's make up a brand, a conference room and add a celebrity and go from there. Every big name behind our brand wrote a check. They are invested. They are invested as business people. They are invested in the liquid. They love the story and the legacy. And most importantly, they believe in the humanity of trying to build a brand that is both people first, um, which does not have to be disaggregated from commercial success. There are so many products out there, liquor and um, spirits and wine. And if you don't have a powerful story, it's not sustainable. 
you know, there's just too much competition. And that story is just fantastic, you know, and, and I was reading up a bit on Diego and the fact that it, it links to his family and to that heritage, I think adds so much more to the brand. That's wonderful. No, it really is. And even the, even the story of the wolves in one of our, like one of our first early meetings, I came back to them and I said, well, we should use the, the Kipling quote uh, for the strength of the pack is the wolf and for the strength of the wolf is the pack. It's just kind of our internal ethos and mantra, right? And it was something that resonated so much with Diego. You know, a lot of LeBron's, the, the Maverick cards of the Rovers, probably was like, this is like literally what we stand for. I don't know uh, if people know, but LeBron and like his three childhood friends, they have a company LRMR and each of them are very successful in their own right. Whether it's Rich Paul, you know, as a legendary deal maker, um, I, I don't think you can even call him an agent, a super agent or what Maverick has done in building a content studio. Um, so, and the way that LeBron approaches, he's, you know, he, he wins rings, but it's on a variety of teams, right? So he brings something really special, but he seems to understand very deeply that like each of you have to be amazing and all of you have to be amazing, right? Simultaneously. And you need to honor both of those in concert. That's teamwork, right? Is a wolf pack. And I, I love that. That's how you bring the brand together. And it sounds like just from your experience and the people that you've worked with and learned from and added value to that's always been the case, right? It's, it's everybody contributes their expertise and you all win together. It is. And of course, I extra love that, you know, wolf packs have the alpha female and uh, <laughs> um, because um, it is one thing, even at uh, at Combs Enterprises, I was very intentional and, and, and Puff was very much on board with this of bringing in as much women leadership as possible, which is good for business. And again, you need to have a diversity of thought. And I had actually done a, a retrospective analysis um, with the CFO at the time and showed him historically that the company made more money. This was just At that time, this was just like a one of one thing. Now there's been big studies when he had more women executives on the team. And now at Lobos, we, we're, we're proudly in the same space. That's really great. I mean, because, you know, you're talking, um, gosh, what, a 20 year gap, right? Yeah. So the fact that, you know, almost 20 years ago, you were working for an organization with diverse leadership, women, people of color running a business successfully. And then now 20 years later, you're doing it again. And it's just unimaginable that we have so many other companies that have not gotten there. You know, what do you think holds some of these people back to, to really embrace that? Because there are studies, there's tons of studies that the more diverse thought you have, the more innovation you have, which then brings more to the bottom line. Well, there's a dramatic disconnect in how, hey, we have to go a very long way. And there's, I think, a lot of confusion that conversation is equivalent to action. So people are feeling like, no, we're doing it. We're doing something. We're talking about it all the time. <laughs> but actually, when you just look at the like S&P 500, it's still not more than 30 women CEOs, which is not meaningful change in the last decade. So part of it is, and I'm sorry, this is me being a geek again. It has to go back to like, you, you got to measure stuff. And it sounds like super basic, but it's a lot of theory and professorial musings. And I actually think a lot of people have the right intention. But when you look to your left and your right, and you just don't know a lot of women executives, one, because we're starting something new. So there just aren't as many. So we have to be invested in the pipeline. You look to your left and your right, and you just don't know a lot of you know black and brown executives. And you're like, this is hard. I want to do the right thing, but I need to hire somebody. I just don't know anyone. 
I think there has to be a inability to have an honest conversation, right? So I've had this conversation. You know, you're a successful white man CEO. God bless you. Like there's no, there should, the world is abundant. Like no one's trying to take from that. Um, but I want them to feel comfortable to say to me, I walk down my halls and I realize I have a problem. Can you help me? I'm like, hell yeah, I can help. But mm-hmm. if you can't even have the conversation, which I think is the issue where we are now in society, then you end up in this terrible quicksand where everybody's frustrated, but there's no progress being made. And we have to be in the service of math-based progress and understand that legitimately diversity is actually good for business. And it's not a charitable endeavor and it's not something you should do you know, every third Sunday or have a special holiday for. It needs to be a way of doing business because everybody can profit if you do it right. Hundred percent, and and I think in in today's age, I mean, I think of when I started in liquor business, you know, twelve years ago to what it is today. There has been a lot of progress, right? And it and it does look different. There's yeah. still a lot more work to to go, but it's almost being that woman and and being minority. And, and being the person of color, it's not enough. You have to raise your hand. You have to use your voice. You have to let people know that you contribute and that you want to learn, right? So what do you say to that younger generation or, or people that haven't found their voice or maybe don't have that extra drive to, to get to that? How, what do you suggest to those people? Well, two simple things. I think one is, is the why is all, and I say this all the time. So forgive me for being redundant, but all human beings have that 99.5% the same genome, right? So if aliens looked at us, they would be like, why are these ants arguing so much, right? We all have the same capacity for infinite abundance within us. Now it would take me a a long time to get to LeBron skills on the court, right? (laughs) But if I really worked at it for 26 years, I might be able to get get there. So I think first is level setting in your mind that there is not some inherent advantage that anybody has, which I don't know that people really believe. I think the way it's difficult, no matter what side of the table you're on, whether you think you're a little part of you thinks you're inherently inferior or a little part of you thinks you're inherently superior, it's a disadvantage for both sides because it's just not true. And then the second piece is sometimes you have to white paper something brand new, right? You look at like, you know, iPhones didn't come from Palms and Netflix didn't come from Blockbuster. Entrepreneurship is probably, it may feel like a difficult path, but it's probably really the easiest path to cause mass disruption. And when you think about wealth creation for minorities, it's also where the the significant gap is. It's hard to just only, don't get me wrong, I'm big, be an entrepreneur. You need to get the experience. Be, I've learned so much being employees, but figure out how you can own something, whether it's you and your three friends buying a small place at your Airbnb out, whether it's investing in your local bakery or nail salon, whether it's just your portfolio that you put a little bit in. But I think if you want to change something, you having ownership, it gives you a different impetus and it gives you a different level of respect um, when you're having a conversation and encouraging that change. I love that advice, you know, because once you have ownership, you realize you've got skin in the game and it doesn't have to be a huge thing, but just having some ownership. That's great advice. So tell us, I know you also do so much to kind of give back and empower others. So what are some organizations and and what are some of the, the work that you're doing? Yeah. So I'm on, um, I serve on the board of Capital Prep Charter Schools, which um, Dr. Stephen Perry and, and Sean Combs are a part of, and they do amazing work with these, to, to the point we just made with these brilliant kids who Sometimes we see them come in at three grade levels behind and are able to catch them up in one year. And, you know, the good news there is strictly that it's possible. And the bad news is we should be doing it everywhere, right? Yeah. Um, I, I work with an organization, which I think is a called Thread in Baltimore, which kind of underpins our larger conversation. 
their focus is really like how to desegregate Baltimore is a very segregated city. And the way they do it is um, we focus on high school students who are like GPAs are like 0.005 point, like very, very low. And we particularly want GPAs like who they almost would normally be viewed as like can't be saved, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we pair them up with a volunteer group and essentially build like a family around them. And it's all different zip codes, walks of life. There's an area in Baltimore, as an example, where within something like within eight blocks, the lifespan drops 20 years, right? Just oh. to give you a picture of it. So, so the whole points organization is really like threading together those different communities for a requited respectful relationship where each side benefits from it. And we see changes from graduation rates of less than 5% to over 90%. And it really is just all tied to relationships. Um, When we talk about this lack of diversity, a lot of it comes because you just don't know each other. Mm-hmm. Don't go to each other's houses. Even if you work together, it's casual and it's it's surface, but there are not deep, meaningful relationships across lines of difference, which makes it difficult to cross that line. So this organization is is geared on changing that. And, um, and honestly, I think that's a, you know, potential solution for the things we're trying to solve for as a country. Yes, absolutely. That's incredible. I mean, just providing those resources to the children and and just that extra support and guidance, you you don't know what can happen. So that's totally, but it's two way, right? The the, the, the children are also teaching us. Oh yeah. You know I, I mean, so it's, 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 um, it's what I think it's, it's a, it's a beautiful model. It's run by this brilliant woman, neuroscience scientist by trade. And she has just done a phenomenal job and has a great model that I'd love to see replicated around the country. Absolutely. We learn from children every day. I have, my son is almost 10 years old and he has taught me so much. And I tell, you know, I mean, a, a whole nother topic, right. Is being a mother and, and especially in this industry. And I, I tell the young moms all the time when they're like, Oh, I'm going to wait before I have kids because I'm focused on my career. I'm like, you crazy. You better have a kid because that's what accelerated my career. You know, I just became such a better person. You know, I, how old is y- your daughter? We got to meet or the last time. Oh, that's right. Yeah, she's eight years old. And you know, it's something to that. Like the old saying, if you want something done, give it to a busy person, right? You know what I mean? It's yeah. just like, it does help you. You really are like, okay, every minute counts. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're going to get like, moms know how to get the heck out of a minute because they are trying to organize oh, yeah, for so sure. many things. And that's my experience. I, you know, I'm sure dads uh, you know, are, are having similar experiences. But for me, I feel like you really have to know how to make sure you have your organic, you know, blueberries going and soccer practice and your, you know, your 43 Zooms that you have for the week. I always think we're kind of the test. We're like the test generation. And I'm like, maybe in a hundred years, people know what they're doing, but the women right now are figuring it out and flying by the seat of our pants doing 7,000 things per minute. <laughs> yep. And doing it amazing. Right. And, yes. and still, in yeah, heels. In, heels. In, in heels. Right. And looking good and doing amazing. Yes. That's great. You know, as we wrap up, I would love to get your vision and God knows where you'll be in five to 10 years, but I just want to see your vision for Lobos and all the work that you guys are doing. And and what does that, what does that look like coming out of this pandemic? You launched during the pandemic. um, Where do you see yourself from here? God and I connected in 10 years. I plan to be on a beach somewhere. So (laughs) (laughs) that's my, that's my plan. That's my selfish plan. But uh, no, but for Lobos, you know, again, this is a little, I'm a little Pollyannish, but of course I'm competitive and we want to build an enormously successful brand and we'll, we're well on our way. We're already on track to be 5X, our original year one plan. Wow. Um, so the response has been enormous, but 
we genuinely, from the bottom of our hearts, want to build a phenomenal example of what it means to, to build a bigger table. Even within our group, whether it's Arnold Schwarzenegger, Austrian actor who became a governor, Republican in the United States, to LeBron James, a kid from Akron who has like built through passion and dedication and discipline this incredible career. But we all work together in concert to build this vision and bring it forward. So I want to be, I hope we're the case study of like, let's look at an example of a brand that is doing the right thing and doing it well, commercially successful with an incredible team behind them. And I think that that's so inspiring for so many because just having this podcast, we've had the luxury and the honor to interview so many different people like Joshua Davis, who's, you know, Josh Davis, everybody does. And, you know, he created a platform. He created, you know, Brown and Balance to really bring this diverse acceptance and inclusiveness within the black bartender community because it wasn't there and the brands weren't bringing them in. So it was like, okay, I'm going to start this community. And now everybody knows him, you know, and then you've got Samara Davis more from a consumer perspective, right? Like, and somebody that's worked for agencies and in marketing, it's like, you guys aren't marketing to people that look like me and my friends. And, you know, we like bourbon too. And, and we want to sit on bourbon and enjoy these type of events that cater to us. So she created Black Bourbon Society. And I feel like we're seeing so much of that and it's it's happened and, and we're learning more. Chanel Turner, and I'm going to connect you with oh, all please. these people because I, yes, it's- please. One thing that COVID has taught us as a hospitality industry includes everything, brands, suppliers, frontline, back of the house. And, you know, with what Chanel did launching Foudre Vodka is she also recognized that there was a list of black owned spirit suppliers and, and, and wine suppliers that she didn't know any of them because she doesn't see them in the store. So now she's been helping them with the Bose Fest and black and actually up in your area. Cause she does that in DC. Oh yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So oh, the work that the uh, women of the vine and spirit, what they're doing. I think yes. And women of the vine and spirits, yeah. what Deborah is doing there and providing it. So work. everybody's doing this and it's a new time. It's a new time. And to have you guys, you know, with Lobos and and you and, and your experience and, and LeBron and, and Arnold and like using your massive platform to drive that same initiative. This is the change that everybody's been waiting for. And I just, um, we're so honored that you came to share that story with us. No, thank you so much for, for having me. And I am, um, I'm booking myself back. So I look forward to our next time. Oh. <laughs> You're coming back for sure. Um, I know Bridget will not have it any other way. And I'm surprised she didn't like call in, but um, this is wonderful. And I hope we continue the conversation there's so much work to do. And we're just honored to be able to represent Lobos and, and see this brand grow and see that pack grow, right? Like the biggest pack ever. And yes. That's yes. Join a wolf pack. Lobo 1707. Yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, have a wonderful evening, Dia, with your family. And um, we will hope to have you back again and we wish you all the best continued success. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music why We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers!